The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Applause is not necessary. Hello there. This thing is humming again. I'll get it fixed. <laughs> Jerry, you ought to check this before you go, because often there's a hum on it. And this hum comes from the... There it is. There's a short somewhere, or an open, really, in this junction box. So when you hook it up, just don't hook it up and see where the noise is coming out of it, because I can't work with the hum, okay? All right, we've got to get things underway. Now, <laughs> uh, applause is not necessary. I'm just keeping my lip in here. Excuse me. Let me uh, get this thing up here. There it goes again. Crying out loud. What's going on here? There, that's better. Okay. There we go. Got to keep my lip in, you know. Getting ready. Yeah, I'm getting in shape for the big show. Out at Carnegie Hall. Hey, uh, listen. Uh, I, I talk about uh, this is a whole new ball game. Lately, I don't know whether or not you're keeping, you know, keeping, keeping uh, alert to, uh, to to the various sociological developments of our time. And that one of the most interesting sociological developments I have noticed in, you know, my own personal life is that the last couple of months, about the last, I'd say about the last four or five months, <laughs> uh, I should, uh, let's put it this way, uh, since about the first of the year, this past first of the year, and then it dropped off rapidly in the summer, and then it picked up again, because I, I can always tell when school has, has uh, taken up again. Because I start getting letters from kids asking me to write book reports for them. And that's what I call total chutzpah. Chutzpah. You have to sound like you're, you know, chutzpah. Difficult thing to say if you don't know how to say it. But, but the, I just got this letter from this kid. He says, Shepard, uh, I'm doing a, a book report on uh, Robert Service. So would you... Uh, and uh, since I don't know anything about Robert Service, would you please put all your notes down about Robert Service, everything you know about it, uh, and have it back by next Wednesday because that's the uh, that's the time. Uh, uh, also, I would like you to uh, cut me a 15-minute tape. I enclosed the tape. Cut me a 15-minute tape of uh, other observations you have about uh, Robert Service. And, uh, and oh yes, uh, don't forget if you can get a picture of Service somewhere, I'd like to include that in my book report. Uh, signed. You know, <laughs> P.S. I'm in tenth grade, and my teacher said I better have it in by Tuesday, or it's all over. Well, I'm sorry, kid. It's all over. You might as well get yourself set for a life of unemployment, due to the fact that uh, you flunked English too. And uh, you know they're never going to hire a kid that doesn't know anything about Robert Service. Ultimately, you know. But I'll tell you, he, he started. Yeah, if you think I'm kidding, this is the absolute truth. One kid, as a matter of fact. 
uh, wrote me a, lo- a letter, and he says, uh, Dear Shepherd, he said, I thought you'd like to know that, uh, that I just got an A+. And uh, what I did, I taped a, a show you did one night that you were just telling a story. I taped the show, and uh, me and my friend Aki, uh, we copied all the words down. We played the tape, and we copied it down in, our, in, in my notebook. And he said, my mother then typed it up, and I turned it in, and it's now going to appear in our literary magazine. And I also got an A-plus for writing a great short story from my teacher. And uh, I thought you'd like to know how it came out. He sends me a copy of it. Say, <laughs> oh, wow. You see, so I'm saying that the, that the, that the new sociological, sociological development is that, uh, is that the kid has learned from the old man. He's learned uh, that, uh, you know, and there's a great myth around that this is a, a fantastically honest generation that's growing. Forget it, friends. Depends on how you define honesty. If honesty comes from wearing a button that says love and being from McGovern and declaring loudly that you're against bad things, well, <laughs> it's a new kind of honesty. All the while, the kid's stealing book reports. He's, he's buying a, a thing that... Uh, did you know they just broke a big ring up at Harvard where you could buy, uh, you could buy final exams all neatly filled out? Uh, yeah, yeah and, and also uh, term papers. Yes, that's a very... You could buy an entire... In fact, a master's thesis on, let us say, uh, uh, let us say variations in Etruscan art forms. You know, some really elegant thing like it. I believe footnotes went for only twelve and a half, twelve dollars and fifty cents. Not bad. Yeah, that's a fact. And uh, they busted up this ring up there, and uh, they they found they found that it was being run by a crowd, a, a bunch of people you know who had all kinds of peace, love, honesty buttons all over them, and uh, they were raising, they were taking the money and using it to uh, to uh, to put you know into their truth and beauty fund to elect uh, truthful candidates. I thought that kind of had a poetic justice. <laughs> no, let's put it this way, friends. No matter when it was, it even had to go back to the pre-Neanderthal days. It had to go back to the pre, to the prehistoric days. That uh, every human creature, uh, that, that incidentally was the beginning of the development of the human being as we know it. You know, what makes a human being not a horse? Or what makes him not a monkey? Or what makes him not a gorilla? Or what makes him not a turtle? Well, the thing that the human being shares, each human being, each human being, hear what I said? The thing that each human being shares and that sets them apart from all the other creatures, well, he actually shares two things. A sense of humor. It is rare that a turtle laughs at other turtles. Very rare. In fact, there's only one recorded example that happened in 1922 in Euclid, Ohio, and it happened to be a box turtle, in case you're curious. And uh, caused a great furor in zoology circles. But uh, that was only one isolated example. And he died shortly thereafter, this box turtle. So uh, I'm not going to be, you know, make generalized statements. However, I will say that, that man does share a sense of humor. In some cases, a vestigial one. But nevertheless, he does have the ability uh, if, if he ever tries to exercise it. And the other, the other quality that he shares is... Uh, well, for want of a better word, I'll have to put it, let's just simply say dishonesty, sneakiness, a self-serving quality. We can put it into nicer words. So a guy, you know, a guy writing to me and asking me to do his book report does not believe he's dishonest. He's merely, uh, uh, 
you know, he, he thinks he's doing an interesting thing. <laughs> you know, he thinks he's going to write more interesting book report. Well, that's that's one way to look at dishonesty. And uh, and I'm sure that uh, that this is, of course, it's sure, it, uh, the point I'm making here is that dishonesty is a thing that is owned by all people, not just certain rotten ones. And you're exempt. Now, I know I'm going to get 500 letters saying, Shepard, would you please speak for yourself? I have never done a dishonest act in my life. Of course, I cannot sign my name to this letter. There it is, right there, dishonesty in itself. But uh, nevertheless, dishonesty is a thing that we all have. And uh, it is the rare man who uh, accepts the fact that he is, he's, a, he's no better than he has to be. And uh, that he's no better than the rest. The rare man. And uh, all of politics is based on this, incidentally. The, the premise that some people hold, and I wish I could hold that, that there's two groups of people, the good guys and the bad guys, the rotten ones and us. That, uh, that's, a, that's a great premise, you know, and to, to rout out the rascals. And maybe this is one of the reasons why every four years uh, presidential elections are very exciting uh, for that reason, because it becomes naked for a while. That's why people keep saying, I hate politicians, because... <laughs> They, they cater to the worst, and they cater often to the best, but they cater to both ends of the scale of you. And, uh, and so this, this is the thing you don't like about it. You like to pretend that you're pure in heart, and uh, you'll also like to pretend that you have love for all of your fellow men. But every four years, you're called upon to hate the rascals. And the rascals may be your Uncle Fred, you know, who, uh, <laughs> who, is, who believes in the other side. So this is a very uncomfortable position to constantly every four years be in. So the, uh, uh, the, 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 the every four-year battle that we go through, the debate we go through, uh, really doesn't have much to do with whether who's a good guy or who's a bad guy. It's who believes more strongly in the good guy, bad guy principle. That's the, that's the uh, real essence of it. And, uh, and there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, in both sides, both parties, now, I'm not put, taking off on any party, but you talk to anybody within, you know, who's a real believer in one party or the other, and uh, his light shines uh, from his clear eyes, the light of, the light of uh, the revealed truth. And, uh, of course, the revealed truth to him is that he's one of the good guys. That's the true revealed truth. <laughs> and and, and, and so, so this is kind of exciting, and I, I, I just... Just uh, it, it's in, in a way it's it's very it's very uh, I, I uh, suppose you can say it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of comforting to know uh, when you you, know, you get large amounts of mail. Most people rarely have any abstract contact with other human beings. Now, what is an abstract contact? Well, the only letters most people get are people they know, or and uh, junk mail and that kind of stuff. But how many letters do you get that are say anonymous? Well, the average guy, if he gets two anonymous letters in his life, there's a, you know, he's, he's calling the cops. He's really flippant. Uh, but I probably get, <laughs> I probably get within the course of a month, upwards of possibly a thousand. Uh, and so after a while, you begin to see a certain beat in the tempo that runs through all of them. And what runs through almost every anonymous letter is, I am one of the true people. You are a fink and a slob. Now this, uh, this is, you know, it's, it's a common belief. It's held up that way. Or and, at last, somebody told the truth. Somebody put those rotten thinks down. At last. See, that's the other side of the coin. 
But the facts of the matter are that one runs through the, the current beat and tempo constantly of the mail that you get and you read is that nobody ever believes he's a bad guy. I have never yet gotten a letter that started out, Shepard, I must admit, that I'm, I'm really, unless it's done tongue-in-cheek, see, he likes to say it. But, I mean, a real honest letter says, Shepard, you know, I realize that, that I'm basically a sneak. And, uh, and I, I just want to start out with, the, you know, honesty right away so we know where we stand here. But, no, no, you never get this. But it's always assumed that the other guy is. This is a, this runs through mankind constantly, so it's kind of comforting to know that you're you're not alone. After you get a lot of this stuff, it's kind of comforting to know that you are not alone in your basic uh, shoddiness. Uh, <laughs> now, now uh, there are as as of course now we, we've of course we're coming to an interesting part of our history here today, and I think that very few of us recognize that yet, and I'm not saying that I'm one of the exceptional ones that do, but I happen to be in a position where I get a lot of mail, you know, and you begin to see which direction that vast herd is moving. And I'm making, Shepard's making a prediction today. Within a very short time, any actor or doctor can be elected to any conceivable office that he decides to run for. There's becoming a very serious belief in actors in this country, not as actors, but as profound thinkers and people who are always truthful. <laughs> and that's a very interesting, very interesting development. The one thing that an actor has never been, really, is anything but an actor. He's, he's, he's pretending all his life. And somehow, by a perverse series of logic, uh, logical progressions, we have come to believe that actors are the only people who speak the truth. It's fascinating. Not playwrights who write the words they talk, but them, them personally. See, they, they themselves. And, uh, and uh, I've noticed one interesting thing about this. This same belief is now beginning to extend to doctors. Doctors, on the one hand, are, uh, are suspected by people who have problems. And those guys, ah, it was okay until I went to that damn quack. Uh, this, this you hear all the time. On the other hand, any time a doctor shows up on any panel... No matter what the discussion is about, uh, uh, economics in the Middle East, uh, peace in the Far East, if he's a doctor, he has certain qualifications that none of us have. <laughs> so doctors, now the perfect, the perfect candidate of the future, the perfect candidate of the future will be a highly successful movie star who has an M.D. degree who is black, and uh, one-third of his background is Indian. He can't conceivably be beaten. <laughs> I mean, this is... <laughs> I said that would be the perfect candidate of the future, uh, which reminds me, this is WOR New York. Do we have any of those little uh, money buttons to push there? There they go. <laughs> You're gonna like it now that Acme has gone discount. What's in it for you? Everything. Super-saving discounts and a lot more. These are discounts with the Acme difference. 
Now you'll discover convenience, quality, and service in a discount market. Because all Acme markets in northern New Jersey have gone discount. Over 2,000 prices reduced. They're listed in the price reduction book at your Acme market. Yes, you'll find when it comes to super-saving discounts, Acme rewrote the book. Uh, hey, listen, uh, we're still reminding you about the Mandarin House, friend. If you're looking for a good restaurant this weekend, you better... Uh, you know, it really is a drag trying to find a, a good restaurant open on the weekend in New York. I guess it's anywhere in the country. But uh, we'd like to suggest that if you're going to... You know, it's beautiful in the village these days uh, in the, uh, the fall. It really is. To me, this is the favorite time in the village. I really like it. The art show is going full blast, and uh, man, everybody's down there. And if you're going to come into New York over the weekend and you're looking for a place to eat down on the village, I would highly recommend on 13th Street, which is a beautiful street in itself, uh, 13th Street between 6th and 7th, the Mandarin House. Go downstairs, it's a lovely restaurant. And it's one of the first restaurants in America to specialize in Mandarin food which is not conventional Chinese food. They also have Cantonese there, too. But if you'd like to try the real thing, uh, this this comes from a very different cuisine, and it's pretty spectacular. They also have an outdoor dining room, so it's going to be a good weekend. Kind of great to sit out there, you know, with the lanterns and stuff. And this is on 13th Street, between 6th and 7th, the Mandarin House. And their prices are good, too. They have lunch. If you're ever down the village, you like to have a good lunch, too. That's the Mandarin House in the Village, 133 West 1-3. Let's see. Mandarin. Lufthansa. Lufthansa. Ah, ach du liebe Lufthansa. Oh, good morning, Joe. Welcome to the Red Baron's office. Tell the Red Baron that the Lufthansa German Airlines holiday tour salesman is here. I'm sorry, but the Red Baron flew to Munich last night to try to break our speed record in baggage handling. Well, Munich has better reasons to fly to than that, honey. Uh, you know that the Red Baron's Broadway of Europe holiday starts there? I'll tell you, Brunhilde. My name is not Brunhilde. I'll tell you, honey, anybody with one or two weeks free plus a suitcase ought to sign up for Broadway of Europe. You fly mm -hmm. Lufthansa to Munich. Mm -hmm. Every night you're around the town. Then you swing over to Paris. Mm -hmm. Nightclubs that'll make the Red Baron blush. <laughs> then on to London. Or make it Munich, Vienna, Rome, Munich, Vienna, Moscow, or Munich mm. and Berlin. The theater, pubs, private clubs, and every night a private room. Every day, sightseeing, shopping discounts. Mm. Only a guy like the Red Baron could think of Broadway of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, how about making the Broadway scene with me, huh? That good a salesman you're not, Joe. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> poor Red Baron. Hey, you know, that brings up a point. Uh, the Red Baron is very popular. Uh, of course, you know, everybody reads the Snoopy, I suppose, and all, and the whole thing came about... But uh, I wonder I wonder how many people really know nothing about the Red Baron, and they think it's a character out of a comic strip. Now, I'm asking a serious question. I just wonder how many people think the Red Baron is a character created by Charles Schultz. I'm sure a lot of people do. Because uh, one thing I think that most people don't have, and maybe it's a product of our education, I'm afraid that the that this is a product of almost everybody's education. And that is that uh, we study a lot about really uh, comparatively ancient times. I mean, I remember uh, in school studying endlessly uh, 
stuff called the Federalists. Uh, you remember all that jazz? Uh, going through stuff about the Whiskey Rebellion and uh, the Panic of 1807 and, oh, you know, all kinds of stuff, which really, uh, I suppose, is, is, is relevant, or if you prefer, relevant, if you're, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're in the history major scene. But how many people actually spend much time studying what could be called contemporary history? In other words, 20th century history. We're all 20th century men. No matter whether you're 10 years old or whether you're, you know, 70 years old. A man of 72 is a 20th century man, obviously. He was born, after all, this is, what, 1972? So all of us are 20th century men, no matter who we are. And I wonder how many people actually study their own century. I mean, seriously, in school. Unless it's a specific area, they may study, quote, something called the Great Depression. <laughs> or or uh, and this, this, this goes through our entire educational system. Uh, and it's not just history. Very little studying is done on, say, contemporary American writers. I'm talking about contemporary, really contemporary. I'm not even talking about going back as far as... Uh, when, when they talk about contemporary American writers, they always, they always refer to, say, somebody like uh, uh, Ambrose Bierce. Or uh, you read about the Stephen Crane or Bret Hart. And these guys, you know, were writing out of the 19th century. They're fine, but they were writing out of another century. And uh, just recently, I, I uh, to bring a little perspective in this, though, I got a letter from a university out in the Midwest. It hasn't happened yet much in the East, but I got a letter out in the Midwest. And uh, this university invited me out of uh, to uh, to come out and, and talk to a literary class out there, a group of literary people, I guess, studying American literature. And they wanted to talk to a, a contemporary American writer who worked in a specific area, which is humor. And uh, I was quite surprised because in most, uh, in most colleges, humor is always called uh, Thurber. Uh, humor is all, <laughs> even though it may bore you stiff, Humor is always called uh, Mark Twain. Uh, humor is an almost, they rarely touch George Ade, but it's always Mark Twain. It's always Thurber. Uh, Dorothy Parker, we'll talk about her a little bit, but very rarely, not much. Uh, Benchley, not very often. Uh, and so uh, I was really pleased when this came in. I thought, well, you know, that's kind of surprising because uh, generally contemporary, really contemporary writers, I mean, talking about contemporary people writing now are rarely discussed unless they write a specific kind of novel, usually ethnic. Uh, you either write a black or you write a, a Jewish novel or something like that. That's, that's considered really serious literature. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, thing to, to, to realize that our, our, uh, our education doesn't really touch on a lot of the stuff which has played a key role in the development of our work. For example, the Red Baron. What do you know about the Red Baron? Well, I'll tell you one interesting thing about the Red Baron. The Red Baron not only was a spectacular character, but he studied under a man, and when I say study, he learned aerial tactics under a man who is generally credited with being the single person who created what could be called the classic aerial tactic formations that are used even today. Now, now, how many of you know the name of that man? Okay. Now, why am I the only one? <laughs> How many of you even know that he studied? 
Well, he just assumed he jumped in his red airplane and went up and shot planes down. No way. One of the reasons why the, the Red Baron was a spectacularly successful pilot in, uh, in his, in his uh, pursuit of enemy aircraft during World War I was the two reasons. One, he had talent, obviously. But two, he, he was a man who had, who had learned tactics extremely well and, in fact, uh, at a time when, when tactics were vestigial, or not even vestigial, were beginning, embryonic in that field, he was already a consummate uh, aerial warfare expert. And when he took over, you know that in Germany today, are you, are you aware that in Germany, and there has been since the time of the Red Baron, uh, he was never really called the Red Baron during his days. Do uh, you know what his first name is? You, Jerry. Everyone knows it's von Richthofen, but do you know his first name? Well, I'll tell you, it's Manfred. It's Manfred von Richthofen. And he had a brother, Lothar, and uh, actually two brothers. But uh, And what, by the way, his brother Lothar was almost as famous as an aerial fighter as he was. Lothar was a famous ace, and I believe at the end of the war, World War One. He had something like 40 or 45 confirmed victories, which is a lot of... If you don't think that's many victories, the number one American ace of World War I was, uh, was uh, Rickenbacker, who I believe had 26. So, uh, <laughs> so you could tell how good Lothar was. In fact, Lothar was actually considered better than Monfred because he was at it for a comparatively short time. He was younger than Monfred, and he came into the Air Force much, or the Luftwaffe, uh, much later than, than uh, Manfred, and in a very short time had knocked off 40 victories, which was phenomenal. And he was never given the publicity, but he was a great, great aerial fighter. Now, uh, would you like to know some more about him? A curious thing. You know that, that, that another thing about the Red Baron, if you want to call him, he was a baron, actually. No joke. He was a baron, and... Uh, and his, uh, his estate, which is still in existence, the estate of the family, the Richthofen family, uh, still exists, but it is in eastern Germany. And uh, so that's behind the so-called Iron Curtain. And his, uh, his gravestone, his headstone, he is buried uh, just inside the wall. In fact, uh, from, if you were to stand by the headstone of von Richthofen, I'm talking about Manfred von Richthofen, if you were to stand there, the wall is only about 75 feet away. That's, he's just inside the wall. And uh, his, his headstone, ironically, by the way, is chipped. There are a lot of chips on it that came from uh, shell fire and machine gun fire of World War II. So he is buried there. Now, would you like to hear more about him? Well, I mean, it, this is fascinating because people really don't know anything about Van Richthofen. That, that one of the great controversies that exists about him, and it is one of the great mysteries of World War I, and it is still yet really, even though uh, a lot of guys will argue with you about this, it is still not quite certain yet how he died. Uh, there, are, there are claimants. Uh, officially, he was, he was uh, supposed to have been shot down by a, a Canadian uh, flyer. Uh, but uh, there is a great deal of argument about that uh, because of the circumstances surrounding his death. Now, do you want to hear how he died? 
Well, on a day, on the day that he he was uh, he was uh, defeated, really died. Uh, he had just he had just shot down a day or two before his 81st victim. Phenomenal number of of, uh, of victories. And in fact, uh, there are many people, in, including uh, certain historians, who will tell you that that he shot down actually some say less, some say more than that, because. Uh, a lot of victories are difficult to confirm. You had to confirm these. You know, just uh, go out and do it. Had to be witnesses and so forth. So there were arguments and always. And he was fascinating among among other reasons. When he shot down his first aircraft, which happened, of course, in the very beginning of his career, he shot down his first aircraft. He came back to the barracks uh, and and uh, wrote a letter to a a jeweler in Berlin. And uh, he, he ordered a tiny silver cup, a little cup, a little silver cup, which would be like a demi-tasse cup or something, a little silver cup, a presentation-type cup, with the aircraft engraved on it, the one he had shot down, the aircraft, the date, and uh, I believe also the area where it was shot down, whatever sector it was. And, and on it was the number one. Well, he continued to do that. Every aircraft that he shot down from that day on, he would write into this jeweler and order another cup. And those cups are still in existence. Uh, There's a a collection, and he did not, uh, at at about 50, somewhere in that area. You find it, don't worry, I'll get to it. Don't worry, just don't worry about the spots. At about 50, he began to he he, he began to change. Uh, There was a great noticeable change in him. He began... He became uh, taciturn and, and kind of bitter, and that many of his friends had been killed. And he began to change, and uh, he lost a lot of the original zest he had for this strange world of, of, of aerial combat, and he stopped ordering these cups. He would also travel to the area where a plane had crashed that he shot down and bring back part of the plane. And he had this, he had his entire room back home where he lived, back on the estate, decorated with uh, with like a, a wing panel, a panel. Uh, he would clip out the, the insignia. If it was a French insignia, you know, the French uh, aircraft insignia, the British rondelles, and he would clip it out, and he would have it mounted on the wall with the date and the plaque under it, a piece of a propeller, a machine gun. Uh, he even he even sent back a, an entire mach- set of machine Once, I believe, he sent back an engine. And that, that there are museums all around, including one in Australia. An interesting thing there, in Australia, they have... Uh, they have the the uh, stick of the aircraft that he was flying the day he was killed. Now, how he was killed was, uh, is a matter of great conjecture now at this point, uh, because he was flying very low. Uh, he had uh, he had uh, winged an airplane, and he was pursuing this aircraft uh, in a melee. There was a great dogfight, and he had he had uh, he had winged one, or had, had uh, somehow caused it to drop out of the combat. And he was flying low over the trenches at no more than 50 to 75 feet above the trenches, which is extremely dangerous for an airplane, especially in those days when they didn't have armor plate net in them. And he was flying very low over the trenches and pursuing this aircraft. Now, another thing that added to the curious controversy is that he was flying a borrowed aircraft that day. It was not the aircraft that he had ordinarily been flying up to that point. And this was a borrowed plane because his plane was being serviced. 
and it was a different color than the one he ordinarily flew. Uh, this one happened to be a dark maroon aircraft, all colored maroon, and he was ordinarily flying a red aircraft. Incidentally, that's where he got the term Red Baron, because he, he flew a blood-red Fokker triplane, a DR-1 triplane. You've probably seen pictures of this. Although most of his, uh, or many of his early victories were not shot down in, a, in one of these triplanes. He shot them down in an Albatross DR-3, which is another type of aircraft. So, so anyway, he was flying low over the, over the lines on this day. And uh, there was a pitched battle going on, infantry battle going on, everything underneath it. See, there was a machine gun nest, and all right, right over the front lines. He's, he's, he's pursuing this aircraft at, at about 100. Incidentally, this is one of the very rare times that he ever did something which he would never have done ordinarily. So a lot of people say that he must have been either troubled or preoccupied because he broke his own rules, which is to fly very low in an exposed position over the front lines after an airplane that was obviously disabled. He would never have done this. But he did it. So he came down low, and all the ground troops opened up on him. Thousands of guys were shooting away at this airplane that just was whistling along over them, you see, with rifles, with machine guns. And at that time, another aircraft began to come down on him and pursued him, too, and he opened fire. But there's a great argument among many, and it was witnessed by something like 15,000 people. This is a, you know, tremendous battle, and they were all watching it. Some say that he began to fall before the aircraft behind him even started a fire. He was already, obviously, uh, out of control. Others say no. So there's a controversy that, that, that stands to this day. Uh, they've even taken post-mortems and the whole bit. Some say that he was shot. The most, the most, uh, the most uh, popular theory is that he was shot by a New Zealand, I believe it is a New Zealand, machine gun nest, and that he was hit by a, by a shell, by a slug from a New Zealand machine gun on the ground. Uh, others say, no, this plane... This, uh, this this aircraft that uh, was uh, leveling in on him got him. Uh, others say no. Others say, and this is a third. There's a third theory too. The third theory is that he had been he had been wounded prior to this, and that's why he was coming down. That he that he was doing something totally out of character at the time. So he must have been wounded. So uh, anyway, he he was killed, and nobody knows at this point how and why. And yet, there are constant books come out. Uh, one book proves this, one book proves that, one book does this. Uh, and so, yet the controversy rages. There's another interesting thing about it, too. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ramifications for the Red Baron that, uh, that the average person uh, would not be necessarily interested in. And that, that is this, that on the day there is a photograph that exists. On the day that he was shot down, uh, somebody came out, uh, somebody, uh, remember the ground crew, came out and took a picture of him just before he took off on his final flight. Just minutes before. He was, he was out on the, on, the, on the ready line, and he has a dog. Uh, he had a pet dog, which had lived with him in the barracks, a huge German shepherd. And this German shepherd is, is jumping up on him, and he's petting the German shepherd, if you've ever seen the photograph. It's a very interesting picture, and he's petting him. He has his flying suit on, and... Uh, what makes this controversial is that there had not really controversy. It gives sort of added interest, sort of an added interest of, of a metaphysics to it. That there was a, a, 
a uh, superstition among pilots during World War One that it was the worst conceivable kind of luck to have your photograph taken the day of a mission. That was the worst kind of luck. Luck <laughs> that no no luck uh, could be worse. And and sure enough, he had his picture taken. No, the only time it ever happened to him, as far as is known, he had his picture taken. Or it was taken. I don't know whether he approved of it or not, but it was taken. And uh, very shortly thereafter, he was shot down and killed. But uh, the Red Baron, uh, do you know that, uh, that even to this day, uh, the, uh, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, the West German Air Force, has a squadron, the Richthofen Squadron. That's, don't worry, Jerry, I'm on top of it. Has the Richthofen Squadron. Uh, which uh, was was named after him. <laughs> so the Red Baron is not necessarily a Snoopy character. Fascinating man. Taciturn, mysterious. And incidentally, another thing about him is that he he loved to hunt. He was a, he was a fabulous hunter. Uh, hunter, you know, he'd go out hunting deer and rabbits and grouse, and was known as an incredible shot. He really was a great shot, and and so. A lot of people say, of course, this is the main reason he was so incredibly good at what he did. He was not an, not necessarily a particularly good flyer, by the way. He, but he was he was highly intelligent in tactics. He thought everything out. He planned it all ahead, and he was a great shot and deadly. Uh, that reminds me. Uh, we have some commercials, please. So tell me about it. Imagine how I felt my first art show, and me an amateur. You seemed a bit edgy this morning. You should have taken aspirin. But I didn't have a headache. I felt a bit edgy, so I took Compose. Compose, for temporary relief of occasional simple nervous tension. How did they like it? Would you believe I sold three watercolors right off? A bit edgy at times? Help take the edge off with Compose. It's the Caribbean for our honeymoon. There's no skiing there. Use your pretty head. Oh, please don't touch my head. Why? Dandruff. And I used a dandruff shampoo two days ago. Maybe yours is tougher than plain dandruff. It can be psoriasis. See your doctor. Sorex medicated shampoo used regularly helps relieve flaking and scaling. Sorex. P-S-O-R-E-X. Tougher than plain dandruff. Hey, you can go water skiing there. Oh, what a smart little head. Sorex shampoo. Tougher than plain dandruff. This is Barry Farber with a skull and crossbones on this announcement. If you read to get drowsy, the Book Find Club cannot help you. If you read to stay alert and make those around you proud to be around you because they get more stimulated too, then get acquainted instantaneously right this minute with the Book Find Club. I'm going to issue a telephone number in just a minute. I'll do it three times. The Book fine club is waiting for you at the other end of that telephone line. This is a different kind of club. You've got all the regular expected club benefits, extra savings on regular hardcover publishers' editions and bonus books and convenience, but it's the books themselves that make the book fine club a volcano in a forest of Ronson lighters. Hard-hitting books on politics, race, religion, sexual liberation. As an incentive to join now, book fine will send you two extraordinary books for just one dollar plus postage and handling these books they're typical of the books we offer retail for about sixteen dollars here's what you get for your one dollar an american death by gerald frank the true story of the assassination of dr martin luther king jr we may not have all the answers about the assassination of president kennedy but you will have the answers about the assassination of martin luther king in this book for contrast 
Fields for President by W.C. Fields. This great comic springs the length of his chain and sinks his fangs into politics, babies, business, marriage. Call Oxford 71535 for a trial membership, get an American death, and Fields for President, both for $1 plus postage and handling. Once a member, you need to buy just two more books in a year, always at discounts of up to 30% off publishers' prices plus postage and handling. Call Oxford 71535. Operators on duty right now. Oxford 71535. Or send your name and address, no money, to Book Fine, Box 1, WOR, New York, 10018. That's Book Fine, Box 1, WOR, New York, 10018. For immediate action, call now. Oxford 71535. Thank you, Barry. Uh, hey, uh, have you uh, noticed how many supermarkets put their lowest price on a three-pound or over package of ground chuck, huh? The fine print says the price goes up when you buy the smaller size package you need. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not at ShopRite. No, sir. The ShopRite's one value, one price meat market. Meat department where ground chuck costs only 85 cents a pound no matter how much you buy of it. So get down to ShopRite today. Why pay more? And uh, one more note here. If you're thinking of tires, you better start thinking radio friends. And get down to your general tire dealer where those big red general tire radios are on sale. They're good tires. And they're having a lot of sales going on down there. And for you Westchester County Motors, in New Rochelle, see Frank Collins or Bill Boy at General Tire Service, 214 Main Street. Yes, sir. You know, uh, one more thing about the Red Baron. I don't know how I got on the subject or not. But uh, one more thing about him. He, uh, he, he, had other, he had other fascinating qualities. Among, other, among them is that there's still a great mysterious controversy going on over the alleged mysterious woman that he was involved with. And there are veiled references in letters. <laughs> and he was he was dashingly handsome. And these dark set eyes rarely spoke. And when he spoke, he spoke uh, clipped and directly and to the point. You know, the, the cartoons always show the Red Baron as being this fat, uh, sort of a girt frobe character. He was anything but that. He he was he was he was an elegant, slim, dashing character, who uh, who had his his uniforms made specially by a tailor in Berlin, who would come by the way to the airdrome and fit him, his elegant uniforms, and uh, <laughs> oh he was he was he was a man of surpassing elegance and taste, and the prior to that, prior to his great uh, great career. Uh, this is all added to his uh, his legend, you see. This, this is uh, many of the things. And he, oh, who replaced him when he was shot down at, at War's End? The leader of the von Richthofen squadron was, of all people, Hermann Goering. Goering, who also was an ace and had shot down 27 victims and was a very good pilot was appointed the head of the von Richthofen squadron at the end of world, and he was the, the head of the squadron at the time of the armistice. And they refused to give up their planes. You want to hear about that story? Oh, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. The Red Baron, Snoopy, all of them. W.O.R. New York. Stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.